Riddle me this. Where in scripture is the church depicted as a motivational speaking, theatrical, multi-million dollar corporation that are okay with majority of their congregants being biblically illiterate because they're mostly seen as numbers in a seat? I know I'm going to make a lot of people uncomfortable with what I'm saying in this video, but someone needs to say this. This is uh, actually a very vulnerable video for me to make for my own personal reasons. And I want to be clear, this is not me being nitpicky. I'm not being a guns blazing hearsay hunter here. I'm not trying to point out very minor differences in how worship is done or how sermons are conducted. Uh, sermon styles, things like that. I don't have issues with certain things in the church even being modern. No, no, no. This goes far beyond all of that. This is an actual legitimate issue that needs to be talked about in the megachurch. A lot of thought and prayer has gone into making this video, um, so this is not an uneducated conclusion that I've come to. I've gone through my own process with all of this with the last, I don't know, five years or so. So I've kind of been thinking about this stuff for a while. And in many ways, I suppose maybe I've been researching and compiling the information for this video for years without even realizing it. If, if somebody told me five years ago that I would have a YouTube channel that people like and watch <laughs> and I would be making this exact video, um, I probably would have said that you are divisive and you don't know what you're talking about. First, and this is important, let me be very clear on my definition of what I mean and don't mean when I say the word megachurch. I do not mean a general big church. There are lots of those. There are lots of big churches that are theologically sound and they just happen to be bigger. I know many churches that are bigger and I've gone to a few of these and they're very concerned with the spiritual growth of their congregants and they're interested in discipleship and apologetics and also giving good, healthy sermons. They take the gospel very seriously. They take the Great Commission very seriously. In fact, it's at these larger churches that a lot of events are hosted that do just that. They invite theologians, they invite apologists, they invite people to come answer the questions that their congregation might have. Uh, they open it to the public. They help promote these really vital ministries that sometimes are put on the back burner at a lot of other churches. They don't typically fit this megachurch type model and, and culture that I'm referring to. I'm talking about a church that is huge, but has very specific characteristics and themes to it that are very troubling. I'm not really talking about one singular megachurch in America. This is a blueprint that is followed by many megachurches throughout the nation. The megachurch is a specific intentional entity. They follow a megachurch model made to attract people to the church. And, and they do get their numbers with this model. They do grow, but it is mostly done at the compromise of discipleship and sound theology. And in, in my opinion, the worst part is <laughs> the leadership of these churches, uh, they know this and they still want this. Now I cannot make a 
broad brush claim that everything that I'm going to share in this video is done at every single megachurch in America to the extreme. Because some do have some good things to say from the pulpit. I'm referring more to the unnecessarily high standards that are placed on the physique of the church, how it looks, how it functions, and the very purposeful allure that it creates and how many people are drawn to the church. So I'm a 90s kid and when I was making this video in my mind and I kept thinking about it, I kept coming back to a certain 90s comedian to make this point. So let me put it to you this way, inspired by Mr. Jeff Foxworthy. If your Sunday sermon looks more like your high school pep rally than it does the first century church, you might be in a mega church. If your church leadership prioritizes inviting people to church over actually sharing the gospel with them, you might be in a megachurch. If your church is more willing to host pizza parties, concerts, motivational speakers, Holy Spirit nights, encouraging conferences, things like this, but never hosts theologians, apologists, or offers additional resources for your understanding of the Bible and the gospel, then you might be in a megachurch. If 90% of the Sunday sermons you hear are more about life application, motivational speaking, allegorical, self-help principles from the Bible, like how to overcome the Goliaths in your life, or how you can dare to be a Daniel, than it is about actual theology, expository teaching, and good hermeneutics, then you might be in a megachurch. If you don't know what expository teaching and hermeneutics even is and have never seen it exemplified or talked about from the pulpit, you might be in a megachurch. And spoiler alert, they're basically fancy words for teaching and interpreting scripture in the context in which the original writers meant for it to be interpreted. If around 70 to 80% of the congregation has no real clear understanding of what the gospel actually is and what they believe and why they believe it, you might be in a megachurch. Hang with me here, I got a few more. <laughs> if your emotions are more appealed to than your intellect and if the pastor is looked at more like a celebrity and is pretty unapproachable, you might be in a megachurch. If you hear big screen testimonies about how this church changed your life, rather than the saving act of Jesus and Jesus alone, then you might be in a megachurch. If half your congregation doesn't come to church when the lead pastor is out of town on Sunday, you might be in a megachurch. I have lots of these, but just one more. If you're on staff, God bless you and I will be praying for you, and you question the pastor, the leadership of the church, and you are harshly reprimanded or even can be fired for doing so, then you might be in a megachurch. This is the toxic environment that I'm referring to. And see, the average layperson doesn't see this. It's on the inside. It's the methodologies and philosophies that I'm taking issues with. See, the megachurch methodology and culture is more attentive to market strategies, business techniques and demographics, rather than following the biblical mandates and standards that make up a church. Their methods are intentionally aimed at affecting numerical growth. But what you do to entice them to get through the door, you have to keep doing to keep them in the seats. 
to keep them there. And this can be done through many ways, many different means, through entertainment. This can be done through some sort of incentive or emotional felt need that they're trying to fill, a sense of community, a sense of belonging. The gospel takes a backseat. And now the church is now the catalyst in which they feel that fulfillment. This is seen across many denominations, although most megachurches will label themselves as non-denominational. That, that was a long first, but second, I need to be really, really clear about this because this is a subject close to my heart. I'm not gonna bash or ridicule anyone. I am not talking about salvific issues, all right? I think many people that go to megachurches are saved. I'm talking about a very, very important ecclesiological issue, a church issue. I think these churches have really good intentions when they start. I think that they have the, the right thing in their minds when they start their churches. It's just along the way, something, something has gone wrong. I think the lead pastors of these churches, they need lots of prayers, lots of prayers. I think they have an immense amount of pressure and, and hardships that I think leave them feeling really lonely and feeling like they need an iron grip of control and it always puts them on the defense. Be that as it may, I am still going to respectfully but firmly make my point because something is wrong here. I, I do think with what I've seen in Witness with America right now, I think it would be wrong not to say something. People don't go to church to know Jesus anymore. They, they go to feel good. They go to get some sort of motivational life application message from the pastor that they hope will make their life better somehow, but they never actually give their life to Jesus. And then when the pastor does talk about giving their life to Jesus, it's it looks like serving and joining the church. It, it's more about becoming part of the community of the church than it is about real repentance and, and knowing and spreading the gospel. I have seen some of these churches just panic in the wake of 2020. Some have made terrible and dare I even say unethical choices to keep control of their precious numbers. They have a pristine image to maintain. They have bills to pay too. I don't know. I think I might be going out on a limb when I say this. But I think that God might be doing more than just testing the church. I think he's exposing it. Also, again, and I said this before, just to be clear, I, I, I am not saying that people don't get saved in mega churches. Praise God if you have had a genuine conversion and live for the Lord and it was done through the catalyst of a mega church. I have met many people who have had genuine conversions after attending a church like this and some of them are the most genuine Christians I've ever met. However, a lot of them tend to not really stay at these churches. They feel spiritually stunted or frustrated and what they tend to do is they move on. They go to different churches that have a more of a focus on spiritual and biblical growth instead of numerical growth. Another issue is from what I've seen, there tends to be a lot more false conversions than true conversions. And there's very little to no discipleship happening within these churches. See, the thing is, is that's not the goal of the megachurch model. If you want to grow spiritually, you're told to join some sort of group, a life group, a small group, whatever the case may be. You need to volunteer. You need to join a ministry. Get your hands in the church somehow, some way. But a lot of times people find a lot of theological obstruction to this as well because... 
a lot of times this is aimed more at fellowship than it is about actually digging in the word and doing a real Bible study. Now, there's nothing wrong with fellowship to be clear, and that should be part of it, absolutely. But this does further exemplify my entire point about the imbalance that we see in the megachurch culture. It's more about meeting our emotional, our life needs, than it is about what we believe as Christians or knowing real theology. Fellowship is easy. Discipleship is necessary but ignored a lot of the times. Now, discipleship is different than fellowship, all right? This means that we invest our lives into others and it's done in such a way that we learn to obey everything that Jesus taught, as he said in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 20. See, and the process doesn't stop after baptism. I mean, in order to fulfill the Great Commission, new believers must learn to live out the, the, the teachings of Jesus. And the best place for a young believer to do that is the local church. They should not only hear the word of God properly applied in the context in which it was written, but they should have abundant opportunity to put it into practice. See, it's, it's coming alongside someone and challenging them and helping them to mature in their faith as well as their biblical literacy in order to be a part of that great commission, to go out and spread the gospel. See, the thing is, is that this takes time. And unfortunately, the megachurch model just doesn't really allow for this. You catch them, you clean them, and you send them on their way. Just make sure they checked the box though, because that's important. So maybe some of you are asking yourself, then what's the problem, Melissa? I mean, if people are truly saved in these churches and people feel good about themselves and they're getting hope and help, why is this a big deal? Why, why are you picking on them? Because a watered down gospel is, is no better than a false one, if you ask me. Look, guys, if God wants to get your attention, he's gonna get it. A drunk dude told me about Jesus when I was 16. That was the catalyst that was used that, that made me accept Jesus. To, to get out of the new age, two Jehovah's Witnesses showed up at my door. I mean, God, if he wants to get you, he'll get you. He's sovereign. He can use a megachurch too, but that does not mean that there's not issues to be pointed out here. Look, when a weird bait and switch is done, and theology and the gospel is watered down to entice people to church. And, and that's your goal, to intentionally follow a very specific seeker-sensitive, get people through the door, get bigger numbers model. I, I don't think that that's okay or biblical. Okay, so, so let's get into this a little bit more. As I mentioned before, one issue that I have seen that is downplayed a lot is repentance and discipleship. Seeker-sensitive churches run more like a business. Your conversion, being real or not, is irrelevant in many ways because you checked the box. You were baptized. They're taking your word for it. You're now one of us. You're in the family of God. You're all in. You're volunteering. You're in a ministry. Yay! But... Do you actually know the gospel? Can you actually explain that? Do you know the actual core doctrines of Christianity? Do you even believe them? <laughs> I mean, this is Christianity 101 type stuff. And then there's this half gospel given to some people that I've seen. It's like Jesus is used as some sort of 
band-aid instead of seeing him as a savior. He's seen as a savior, but only in the sense that he's there to help them fix their problems. The bigger issue is not really told to them. It's like they don't understand what the actual gospel is and they see this Jesus thing as something to try out. And then then the weird thing is this, and this is this is ironic to me because the usually megachurch pastors, they'll say this too, that Jesus isn't something to just try out. They'll talk about committing your life to Jesus and that he's not something that you can just put over your problems. And then they don't elaborate anymore on what that means. And then they'll talk about if you serve enough, are you in a ministry? Are, are you volunteering? If you're not being the hands and feet of Jesus by not serving or not excited enough on Sunday or involved in a group, then there's something wrong with you. This is not the same thing as the gospel. And again, I'm not saying all megachurches do this, but this is the culture that it creates. It's like this therapeutic brand of religion. It puts the actual gospel on the back burner and it's made to entice people through the door. It's supposed to look appealing and it's supposed to look appealing, especially to the unbeliever. That's the point. It's self-esteem preaching. It's life application preaching. How, how does this scripture fit into my life? How does this apply to me? Even if it's not about you at all. If Jesus was leaving to get away from the crowd to find solitude. Have you ever had a problem waiting for you and you weren't prepared for it when you got there? But the crowd was waiting for him. The crowd was what? Waiting. When they found out Jesus was leaving to get away, the crowd was waiting when they got there. Then all of a sudden, that's turned into some sort of weird allegorical life lesson. And I don't know what's waiting for you this week, and neither do you. You're Jesus, and the crowd is like your life problems. This is you wanting solitude from your problems, but they're always there waiting for you. And the pastor is just so excited to tell you this. You don't know what's waiting for you this week, so you have to get this word right now. So you gotta get this word right now. Then there's a passionate theatrical reaction of tossing back the chair. I don't need this chair. I don't need my stool today, move this stool. You gotta get this word right now. Because that illustrates how serious he is. Who cares if that's how the scripture was intended to be interpreted. This is what you need. And the more emotion and intensity that it's relayed with, the more impact it'll have. The pastor here is clapping, amens, and cheering. Right now, right now, right now, because you don't know what's waiting this week. Proof that he's made his point and that people are actively receiving the message. Job well done. Yay, pep squad. Now guys, let me say, on the surface, it's not the worst thing in the world to want unbelievers to come to church. This is one of the main intents of this megachurch model, is to get away from the stuffy suit and tie, sit up straight, hell and damnation, play the part, him and pew kind of church. I actually get that, I really do. So, so many people have been turned off by this legalism that we have seen in the church. But my word, it's like one extreme to the other. We've gotten so far away from that, where the Bible was forcefully and legalistically shoved in people's faces, to a church that's now just completely seeker-friendly, and the gospel is softened and, and not told at all in some cases. It's like the pendulum problem. Ooh, that's a good idea for a video. I'm gonna write that down. So 
Here's the mentality of how this philosophy and model works. See, back in the day, what kept people from going to church wasn't necessarily Jesus and the gospel. That's what people need. That's the medicine. That's the cure. What would happen is that it was usually the people in the environment that was created that kept people from going to church. It would either bring people in or repel them. It just reminds me of any other spiritual fast food pitch out there. Inviting somebody to a church that's fun and different might make them feel included and loved for a little while, but this, this doesn't last. You put too much emphasis on the church fulfilling you. The church doesn't save your soul. Guys, inviting people to church is not the same as sharing the gospel. That's not the same thing. When inviting people to church becomes the priority, over actually discipling people on how to share the gospel and, and how to defend it, then you're gonna have a lot of congregant turnover. These churches, they say they wanna see souls saved and I, I think there's an aspect to that that's very true. I think they mean that, but but what I see is is just watered down medicine. <laughs> let, me, let me tell you guys, there was this one time when I was a kid that I was really sick and I needed to take my disgusting, gross, harsh medicine. I knew that I needed a certain dose for it to work right. But man, it tasted nasty. I mean, it was like motor oil. So I begged my mom to dilute it. <laughs> and I, I don't know, maybe she was just trying to teach me a lesson because that's exactly what she did. She diluted my medicine. She handed it to me and it was, it was very diluted. There was very little medicine in it. But man, it was so much easier to take. But let me tell you something. <laughs> it did not work. I was still sick and needed to take my full dose of medication, all of it, even if it was hard to swallow. It was definitely what I needed, but not what I wanted. And this is kind of what I see. I see the same thing happening when we dilute the gospel. Sure, we get some of it. Great, we make it easier for ears. And people want that and they like that. They want to hear something that's uplifting, positive, or fulfills them in some sort of emotional way. Even if what they're doing is wrong and they're told, hey, this is wrong, you need to get your life together and they needed to hear that, that was a good message, I need to stop doing whatever this is, that's good advice, and that's good, but again, what part of the gospel is played in that? A, a, a guidance counselor can say the same thing. When you have some sort of emotional fulfillment that's attached to that church, that's how you get them to come back. The megachurch model is made to entice unbelievers and draw purposefully on their emotional desires. And I wanna be very specific in how I say that, not their sins, but their emotional desires, the things they know they have to work on. They know they have problems, how are they gonna get help? It's almost like counseling's too expensive, so I'm just gonna to go to church. It's to make it so that people will invite people to church and to make the environment appealing to outsiders. Again, this is not necessarily something that's wrong. In, in church in general, but this is definitely taking priority over the Great Commission. We never actually see this done in scripture. We, we see the church sending people out to tell the gospel, not really spending millions of dollars to make the church enticing for the Romans. Speaking of the first century church, let me get into this for a second. The mission of the church was to make disciples, glorify Christ and build up the saints. The mission of the mega church is to make the church so inviting to non-believers that they'll wanna join, yay. But are they actually believers or are they seat warmers? It's a place where people can go where they're told that God loves them and they don't need to dress fancy, they won't have the Bible bashed over their head. Great, 
checked the box. But do they actually know the gospel? Ephesians 4 verses 11 and 12 says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Acts 2 verses 43 through 42. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, one could argue from this simple verse that the purpose of the church is to, one, pray, two, teach the actual biblical doctrine, and three, provide a place of fellowship for the believers. The entire mission of the church is to make disciples. Jesus says this in Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The church is to know the gospel, spread the gospel, and prepare its members to do the same. One of my favorite verses in all of scripture, 1 Peter 3.15, In your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that they have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Also, there's this plurality of leadership that I see in scripture. Scripture gives responsibilities and offices to make the church functional. The Bible's very clear, of course, Jesus is the head of the church and every pastor will concede that. It's the physical offices of the church that have a structure to it. In 1 Timothy 3 verses 1 through 3, it gives a lot of direction about church structure. It says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Pastor is literally the word for shepherd. And in the early church and in scripture, elders was usually talked about in the plural. So there was a plurality of elders that were also called overseers and bishops, and they had responsibility. They led the church and they were responsible for teaching the word and leading the people. What we see in scripture is we see the terms pastor, elder, and bishop used interchangeably. If you were fulfilling the role of a pastor, you were also an elder of the church. And with this came this checks and balances system. If, if one person had too much power, that was not seen as a good thing. There was a need for accountability. The teaching pastor shares the responsibility of spiritual guidance along with the other elders. Paul says that there's an added obligation here in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. The pastor and elders are equal in authority but not always in duty. This is what I see in scripture. You never see this emphasis on one celebrity type pastor, nor do we see the point of the church to be just about numbers, to be just about growth. Titus 1.7 says, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. 
I really hope this looks like your pastor. I do. If you're in a megachurch type model and you've had a legitimate bone to pick with your pastor or say it's even your boss if you work for the church, would you be able to approach them and have them exemplify Titus 1-7 to you? Or would you be fired? Would you be reprimanded harshly? Would you be shamed? I really hope that he'd be hospitable and self-controlled. See, here's the pickle here. Here's, the, here's my personal bone to pick. Usually within these models in the mega church, there usually is one main leader with almost no accountability. They say, jump, you're supposed to ask how high. And there's this, there's this phrase within some mega churches, not all, but it's called vision casting. The lead pastor had a vision for the church. I'm not talking about a prophetic vision that the pastor actually literally had a vision, though that could be the case in some hyper charismatic churches, but <laughs> it's literally where they believe that God has given them some sort of direction to grow the church and to go against this vision in some cases is to go against God himself. To go against this vision, maybe you don't need to be a part of this church. And sometimes you can be labeled a detractor. You, you don't wanna be a part of this? You're not on board with this vision? Well, there's the door. Go find another church. Do you guys see how this can be a very toxic environment? In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses one through three, it says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. In Mark 10, we see James and John asking Jesus to sit at his right and left hand. They wanted power and Jesus corrects them. Mark 10 verses 42 through 44 says, and Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave for all. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is what leadership should look like, to serve and not be served. You know what this reminds me of is, I actually had the wonderful opportunity to go to an amazing apologetics conference. And the person that was putting on the conference, the, the host, if you will, is pretty well known. You'd think that they would be kind of unapproachable or just kind of want to hide out but that's not what they did at all. The entire time that this conference was going on, it's like they were watching over everybody. It was like they were trying to make sure everybody else was taken care of first. You got everything you need, you all set up. What about you, you doing all right? It reminded me literally of a shepherd over a flock, just making sure everybody's protected, everybody's okay. He made sure everybody ate before he ate. He made sure everybody had something before he had something. And that is a very, every time I think of leadership, especially when you have a platform, when you, whenever you're looked at with respect and, and lots of eyes are on you, he was like a proud shepherd watching over all of us, making sure that we were okay. 
And if we weren't, he made sure we were. Even if it meant that he pulled from his own resources to take care of others. I, I just wish that I would see more of that in the megachurch model. A lot of these pastors are looked at like celebrities or just they, they hide. They don't really come out and people with people. I mean, when church growth and numbers are made to be an idol, the gospel, discipleship, theology, healthy leadership, it all takes a backseat. This trickles down to the pulpit as well. And I'm, again, I'm not saying that everything taught from the pulpit in these churches is wrong or garbage. I'm saying that the overall structure and intent is completely off. I've heard for a while from a variety of different megachurches that the method has changed, but the message has stayed the same. Has it? Look, I don't have any problem at all with people using their talents, their abilities to spread the gospel. I mean, I'm an artist, I understand that. But once again, it's the overemphasis on this that I see being a problem. It's this that makes you special. Forget if you don't understand your Bible, that the intellect does not appeal to at all. There is, there is no need or yearning to explain good doctrine to you because it's about fulfilling your emotional needs under the guise of fulfilling you spiritually. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3, it says, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Are we doing the work of an evangelist? The gospel is supposed to be attractive and unattractive at the same time. See, the goal of the megachurch is to attract. So what happens is most megachurch pastors with their charisma, with their gift to relay information, and their ability to speak publicly, they only really stick with the attractive parts. And if there are negative parts, then what usually happens is they go for the feels. They might express their need for change, but they don't ever actually give the gospel. Take a verse, try to apply it to your life. Are you Martha? Did you ever feel like there was a time that God didn't show up for you? Because that's how Martha felt. Are you Martha? Jesus told his disciples to feed his sheep. So what are you feeding other people? Are you feeding them anger? frustration? Are you feeding them love? Are you serving others? It's allegorical and it's turned to apply to your life somehow. I know that there are lots of people that have personal frustration with us. They're sitting there in church with their Bibles open, wanting to learn the word. They're hungry for it. They're sitting there in their life group, wanting to learn their word. But what they get from the pulpit is a life change story or something closer to a spiritual TED talk than an actual sermon. Let's just say I've never found a really good foothold in a lot of women's Bible studies, like apologetics. Paula, what? What is she talking? Is she apologizing to somebody? Who invited this chick? Was it you? Was it you, Martha? Did you invite her? This is your fault. True story. Yeah. This is kind of the key. This is the core point. Self-esteem, emotional needs, and personal fulfillments are primarily what you will hear from these pulpits. This is foundational to the megachurch model. This is how you grow. This is their marketing strategy. Temporary relief of your problems, short-lived happiness instead of the truth of the gospel is what's given. If there were a mixed megachurch type gospel, it would be that Jesus died to meet your emotional needs. 
He died to fulfill you personally. He died to give your life purpose. It's all about finding meaning and purpose in life. God loves you and he wants you to do what he has made you to do. Again, this is not all bad or necessarily untrue, but this is nothing different than you'd hear at a motivational speaking conference of some sort. This is why people are drawn to these mega churches and these types of messages. They feel good afterwards. They feel better. They feel like, okay, I need to change this in my life for my life to get better. Oh man, I, I maybe I should get involved here. This looks like a nice place. This is a good place. But they still don't know the gospel. They do feel loved. They feel accepted. They feel a part of a community. And the thing is, is that most people have avoided going to church because they've had a very negative experience of church. This model strives to undo this wrong, but they undo it by diluting a lot of core Christian beliefs. They don't hide it. You can go on their website and look at their their statement of faith and it's orthodox, but they're not really coming and filling their congregation with why they believe in those core doctrines. It's about fulfilling these temporal needs. And when I think about spiritual needs, I think of John 6. John 6 verses 57 through 66, it's kind of long, hang with me. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, he said to them, do you take offense of this? Then what if you were to see the son of man ascending to where he was before? It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And this is interesting. This is John 6, 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. People wanted their physical needs met. People left Jesus because of his unpopular teaching on having their spiritual needs met. So if the mega church model is based on numbers to them, all numerical growth is considered good growth, whether it's genuine or not. What I mean by that is how many people came forward to accept Christ? How many people raised their hand to serve in a ministry or to be baptized, who checked the box to serve, who made a follow through request or a next step or joined a group or a ministry, etc. This is their basis of success. Did they mean it? Who knows? They want to serve, but where are they at spiritually? I don't know. Who cares? They want to serve. Let's rejoice in that. Be happy. Killjoy. It really does seem like it's quantity over quality. Yay, lots of people came to church this weekend but there's virtually no true spiritual growth or repentance happening at these churches under this model. Their goal is not necessarily to grow you theologically or disciple you, but they appeal to the need for spiritual growth by telling you, hey, you're doing a great job. 
Because you're coming to church, you're serving, you joined a group, you're volunteering, but you have no idea what you believe or why you believe it. You're told to invite people to church. This is done all the time. And this is almost on par equivalent to giving the gospel. Though they will not say that, that is what is emphasized. Now, this is just my opinion, <laughs> but I think it's because they know. I think these church leaders know that most of their congregants don't know how to share the gospel. They don't know how to defend what they believe, but if we can get them here, if we can get that unbeliever, that skeptic to come here and we can appeal to their emotions and make the Bible more applicable to them somehow, make it more tangible, even if it's not, then that's a home run. Make them feel welcome, fulfill that need in them. This is usually what plays in my head when I see people trying to invite others to church or try to tell them about Jesus. If you were to try to tell your neighbor, your friend, your coworker, whoever it is in your life, hey, come to church with me. Most of the time, people don't go to church, not just because of an emotional reason, but because of an intellectual one. They'll give you some sort of pushback. Like, oh, I got hurt at a church once. Oh, great, well, my church is different. This church is different, you can come to this church. But most of the time, lately, especially in this time, in our country, in the world, there's a lot of intellectual pushback to Christianity. Most people don't know how to combat that. They don't know how to defend that. Most people will ask questions. They will give some sort of pushback. And most Christians are not grounded enough in their faith to know how to answer their questions. Ironically, sometimes this ends up shipwrecking a lot of Christians' faiths that were never inoculated to know these arguments against Christianity. They've never encountered a different point of view. And so they've never actually learned how to defend their views against that point of view. Their foundation is more on a blind faith than a forensic faith, an evidential faith. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 through 14 says, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. They're wanting to undo the mean church facade that a lot of people have in their minds. Here, come to this church, come see, we're not like them. We're cool, we're modern. And like I said, it's, I don't think that there's a big issue with having a, an electric guitar on stage or, you know, drums or singing or, you know what I mean? Like there's not, you can wear jeans to church. I mean, modern, okay? But this just goes to a whole other level. They want to have a good image to the unbeliever. So they think that this will help dismantle their overall disdain towards going to church in general. Seeker sensitive mega church type models make Jesus and their gospel easier to swallow. How can this apply to you? Some life application is fine, guys. I'm not saying that we can't somehow go to the word, hear a message that's not somehow applicable to us today, but th this is completely overdone in these churches. You're not David. Goliath is not your financial issues or your struggle that you're having in life. Life application messages seem to be the preferred preaching style of most of these megachurch pastors. All of the aspects of the gospel that might be a stumbling block to some people have purposely been removed to make it easier to hear. Do you see what this does? This draws people to the church, 
not Jesus. Most people have never actually confronted their sin and had given their life to Jesus. As I said before, it's the band-aid version of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, it says, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This isn't just about numbers either, you know, and I hate to say it, but it's, it's about money too. You're, you're talking about a megachurch being a multi-million dollar corporation. This is everywhere. We see this from the less known megachurches to the really popular megachurches with celebrity pastors that have books and mansions, but there's also a lot of debt. And you have to get a lot of people through the door in order to pay off that debt. You know, what it reminds me of is when Jesus cleared the temple in John 2 and Matthew 12. John 2 verses 14 through 16, it says, In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. And then Matthew 12, verses 12 through 13, it says, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer but you make it a den of robbers. Why? Why do these churches need to spend so much money on how the church looks? Why, why spend thousands, no, millions, millions of dollars on remodels, on fancy flat screen TVs, entertainment, festivals, unnecessary equipment, and for what? For the gospel? For, for the kingdom? It's because this model requires a pristine image. It's all done in the name of church growth. Numbers. Through the eye of a needle, guys. Are you serious? Are you kidding me? What are we doing? What has happened in America that we think this, this is us evangelizing the world? How does this look? How does this possibly look? like the Great Commission. They have millions of dollars coming into their churches to make it look good to unbelievers. And then they come and they're not any better leaving than when they came because they don't know Jesus. They don't know the gospel. Are we an army, a spiritual army to go out and kick down the, the gates of hell? I don't think so. You can say that. You can say that, yes, that's what we're doing. Is it? Because I see people leaving the faith left and right. And you know why they're leaving the faith? Usually it's not an emotional thing lately. It's an intellectual thing. People are asking questions and nobody has the answers for them. People don't know the gospel. They don't know their Bible. They don't know what they believe or why they believe it. So when they're challenged, they have no defense. They are not discipled enough to know that they have a foundation, an evidential foundation in what they believe. It's all based on feelings. I mean, come on, somebody needs to say this stuff. Something needs to be done. Something needs to be changed. The church is looking more like a humanitarian corporation than a gospel soul-winning machine. Take away the soft music in the background. Take away the big events. 
take away all the unnecessary allegories we add to every single Bible story to make it about us and actually read the plain text. Take away the pomp. Take away the fancy lights, nice carpets, big buildings, the charming, funny preacher. Take away all the other incentives that you're given to go to church, because that's what they are. They're incentives. What do you get? What if you, you had a pastor who was not the best speaker, but loved Jesus and could explain scripture and could guide you, who was okay with the off-key singing? Maybe there's a crack in the wall. Maybe there's a hair out of place. He would preach to an audience no matter what the size. What if you just had a Bible, Jesus, the gospel, and a group of believers that are hungry to worship and learn about the Lord? No, they will not beat you over the head with the Bible, but they do know it and they do teach it. Say the building wasn't too much to look at. Maybe it was plain. Maybe it's in a house. Maybe it's outside, a, a broken down building. But let's just say it had heating and cooling, restrooms, I mean, it's pretty cozy. There's not even coffee or a gift shop in the foyer. Would you go to that church? I remember asking someone a while ago why they liked going to a particular mega church. They went on and on about how wonderful their church was. They, they loved the pastor. The pastor was very charismatic, very passionate, very well-spoken. They felt they could really fit in there, that the gifts they felt that God gave them could be distributed at this church. They told me all about the ministries, the programs that this church had, and how much they volunteered and helped the community, and how they loved being a part of that. This church had made a huge difference in their lives. It was the first church they felt they could go to since they were a kid. And for them, the people and the environment was just exactly what they needed. It was fun, it was inspiring, and they motivated them. They, they had been going to this church for years, like 10 years, 10, 12 years, something like that. Now, did you catch what was missing in that entire thing? Where's Jesus? Could they talk about Jesus in that same way? Like, could they, could they do that? Ha has this church become a place to fit in that fulfills needs and it has fantastic sermons. It encourages them and inspires them. Or is this a place where they have learned and, and harbors an environment that helps them learn about Jesus and the Bible? Are they trained to know what they believe and why they believe it on top of good fellowship and, and, and good sermons? I mean, is that is this a factor at all? Now, now there's, there's an interesting point to make about this particular person that I asked about with their megachurch. This person had adopted a lot of New Age philosophies in their beliefs, yet they were highly involved in this church, even on staff for a time. They walked through the doors of their church every single week not knowing that what they believed was new age. Now I will say that there is a personal responsibility each individual does have to read our Bibles. <laughs> now this is not to plug people that go to mega churches. I am not saying that every person that goes to a mega church is, you know, completely ignorant to the word. I am specifically talking about the mega church culture that's created within the leadership of these churches. The congregants are kind of free in a sense to, to research and read their Bible independently. I'm saying my issues with this model 
that they don't they don't try to do that that they purposely are designed to allure people into their church they don't really want to disciple they don't they don't want to do theological bible studies they don't promote that this is why i'm happy that a lot of people that do go to mega churches are kind of separate from that they 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 like the church and they go but they're not really a part of that environment. Those are the people that I find disciple others, but it's not because the church has put an emphasis on it. I hope that I have relayed my thoughts on this with integrity and dignity. I want to reemphasize my intent is to point out the ecclesiological errors in what I'm seeing with the church and how the gospel is relayed to the lay people. I praise God for his sovereignty, his mercy and his grace for all of us. And I pray that we can be kind and graceful to brothers and sisters in Christ who, who we might disagree with. I, I think it's great how much the megachurch has helped the community and has helped individual people, whether it's addiction, tragedies that they've gone through, broken marriages. They reach out to the community and they help in as many ways as they can. I think there is definitely a place for this and this should be done. This is something the church is supposed to do. But this is not my point. Any church can do this. The LDS church does this. Atheists can do that. What makes the church unique is the Great Commission, the gospel. I think it's very easy to point to the works of the church and, and claim that this is proof that they're sharing the gospel. But just like inviting people to church isn't the gospel helping the community through works like volunteering, serving, that doesn't save them either or you. The challenge is, is when we offer these services with no real intent to teach the actual Bible, disciple or train people to know the gospel or participate in the Great Commission, to know what they believe and why they believe it. And we, we wonder why people fall away from the faith. When rubber meets the road and people start asking hard questions, enthusiastic sermons and potlucks can only go so far. Meeting that physical emotional need is easier than actually responsibly sharing scripture. When we do this, we are failing in the commands that Jesus gave to us. On this note, I really, really think that we all should be praying for all of these pastors. We, we need to be praying for all people in church leadership. I really do believe they have quite a burden to bear and, and they need prayer and accountability. Please check out the description of this video. I'm going to include more resources there that are relevant to this video, including a video on what the gospel is. And I also made a video sharing about when a Christian leaves the faith that I think is really relevant to this conversation as well. Thank you all so much for watching.